everyone, this is Fashion Knowledge and my name is Beta Vinchuk. I am a Berlin-based critical fashion practitioner and I work across education, research and strategy. I lecture on fashion, design and digital cultures and I run a consultancy and research laboratory called Unfolding Strategies. In each episode, together with my students and fellow researchers and practitioners, we discuss the fashion's most urgent issues and try to reimagine the socially just, sustainable and digital fashion futures. Okay, welcome. So today our guest is uh, Rika de Grip. She's a curator and researcher based in Cape Town, South Africa. And she co-founded together with Lesiba Mavicella, the African Fashion Research Institute, which focuses on the politics, power and poetics of contemporary African fashion. Their main objective is to support creative growth and ongoing engagement with diverse and inclusive African fashion. Erica holds a PhD in African studies from Cape Town University and has taught in fashion for over 15 years. In 2018, she curated a groundbreaking 21 years of South African fashion exhibition at Sides Museum of Contemporary Art Africa. We met about a year ago, thanks to the Union of Concerned Fashion Researchers when I was visiting South Africa and remained in touch since. Erika has also joined my previous classes where she discussed with students her writing on critical reading and reassessment of the dress or dress and fashion in museum collections. Today, I would like us to talk about the origins of the African Fashion Research Institute, what actually is African fashion and how you are contributing to the ongoing debate on decolonizing fashion education. As you know, in my own research and practice, I'm very interested in how we teach fashion. And I believe that apart from discussing sustainability and all things digital, we urgently need to challenge the underlying post-colonial narratives. So maybe we could start our conversation with African fashion. What actually is African fashion? Beata, hi. Thank you so much for the um, invitation to be part of your um, session today. Um, well, you've certainly thrown me in at the deep end with a question on what is African fashion. And I think um, perhaps to start off with what it is not. Um, and I think that is probably one of the biggest challenges that we have is the homogeneity that exists around the idea that African fashion is one thing um, and how that idea has continued um, from the early you know, 20th century um, and perpetuates a kind of stereotype that collapses all 54 countries into one aesthetic um, identity that somehow wants to trap or um, close off opportunities of transformation or, or change. So it's, it's a very convenient tool, I think, that is being used by the idea of, of a Western fashion that is continually changing. Um, the, the sort of subtext of, of global fashion is that it continually changes and that African fashion does not change. So that is what it is not. <laughs> so so the, I think the first step that, that is quite a useful um, conceptual step is to talk about fashion from Africa as opposed to African fashion. So there's a, there's a kind of conceptual step. So 
So to talk about fashion from Africa is to start to open up the opportunities for change. Because I was, I was very uh, intrigued when I was thinking about today before our conversation about African Fashion Research Center. And I was wondering, how did you call it this? Why did you call it this way? I was also wondering if you considered the plurality of fashions and fashion sounds a bit weird, but still today as histories to kind of embrace this plurality of meaning still it's a, a bit more and more used. So um, I'm curious why still uh, you kind of follow with the African fashion in the name of your research center. Why did you mm -hmm. decide to do that? Um... It's a good question. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, the, the lack of uh, the, the lack of a, a platform that considers fashion from the African continent um, and collates or collects such material. Um, we did sort of think about it, African Fashions Research Institute um, with an S as a plural, um, but it just became it became kind of quite difficult on the on on in the speaking of it, um, and then the idea of fashion as a kind of verb, um, so the kind of fashioning um, as a as a verb, um, but I think I think there's also a, on the other side, when I was doing my research, um, as you mentioned, my PhD was really in, in looking at what is happening in museums and how dress from the continent or fashion from the continent was excluded and, and separated from fashion. So this, this cl claiming of, of the aesthetic and material histories as fashion on the continent. So, so there was also a kind of movement to occupy the space of fashion um, as, a, as, a, as an African um, term and not to continue this, this very common trope when we talk about fashion from Africa, it's dress and dress traditions and dress cultures um, and, and fashion as seen as a, as a product of the global north and not of Africa. So there is that sort of occupying of that term. Um, and then in um, creating this, this, as you say, a kind of singular, but I think it was, it's more the singular of a space. So if I want to find out what was happening in Botswana in the 1960s or in Malawi in the 1990s, or in Namibia in the sort of early 2000s when, when they had set quite a lot of political change. What was happening in terms of fashion in those places? Where do we find that information? What are the, what are the routes to kind of knowledge? And so much of African fashion research is distributed in a little bit in anthropology, a little bit in ethnography, a little bit in social studies, a little bit in global globalization and development. So it really is separated. So this kind of trying to bring it into one place. And, and that really was the, the purpose of creating the African Fashion Research Institute. So, so it unified or aims to unify or will aim to unify a, a 
a resource space or an archive space collecting information that that um, is threaded through um, with with idea and and the developments of and the histories of fashion on the continent. Mm, so this is like the main purpose and like the objective of the Institute for and, and origins of its existence. So how does it work in practice? What kind of what kind of projects you're currently involved in or hoping to be in in future? Mm. So we, we are now two years old. Um, so it's still really in its early stages. Um, and we're involved in kind of two kinds of activities. And the one is, is more public facing. And so the public facing projects are projects that would demonstrate in a kind of way um, principles of decolonizing the discourse around fashion or disrupting the kind of ideas of, of stereotype, um, creating platforms to, to engage and, and create access. So one of these was a digitization of a, of a fashion exhibition where we included interviews and videos and backstories, but this is a digital exhibition which then makes the information accessible to anybody on the continent, very importantly, um, but also anybody else beyond the continent. Um, very often access to information is, is key to exclusion. Mm. So, so the digital is allowing us to um, create access and particularly create access to, to and across um, fashion practitioners and their work on the continent. So these public facing projects um, demonstrate um, the work that we um, believe is important to showcase um, um, an independent and um, in terms of diversity and originality and uniqueness of this, these kinds of fashion conversations that, that are not governed by a very dominant Western narrative. So the public facing projects um, we've been involved with also obviously just either need some kind of funding or some kind of partnerships or collaboration. So these are quite often done in partnership. And then the internal work that we're doing which isn't always obviously um, accessible, but we're looking at things like lectures, keynotes. Um, um, the digital has again, have made such a difference there because we've been able to do, we taught a course in Ghana last year. We did um, some work in, in South Africa. We did some work um, in the global North as well. So, you know, the, being invited to, to um, speak to students around the world um, so lectures, we've done some masterclasses, we've done some workshops, um, supervision, mentoring, internships. So these are all kind of more internal projects. And maybe the next sort of exciting one that we're working on is we're starting to work on an archive oh. or some kind of research, some kind of research resource space, um, recognizing the great lack of of cohesion in finding materials around African fashion. And what, what, is, 
uh, yeah. will it be will it be a digital uh, archive or will it be also physical or both how do you how do you imagine that um i would imagine that primarily this will be digital um it's um its usefulness and its purpose is to make fashion information available um, across the continent. So whether you're a student in, in, in Nairobi looking at histories of, of you know, a particular textile or particular um, resistance to, to um, colonialism through dress, you know, these kinds of micro histories that are, that are happening across the continent and feeding into what is happening in the contemporary. Um, so sharing those kinds of information. So making those kinds of either previous research or previous histories accessible and um, shareable. So the sort of the need to collate and, and share that information is I think central to to um, embedding a history that has up until now been um, erased from the fashion history books. Um, I'm just going to draw on a, on a very quick example as well, like the, mm -hmm. the, um, the Victorian Albert Museum now is, um, they are calling on the public for information, any kind of information, whether it's visual information or story or material information relating to African fashion histories. So the, the, the route to that knowledge is through people um, because there's been such an absence of writing about those histories. So in the same kind of way, this kind of excavation of a history that, that has remained outside of textbooks, outside of collection, museum collections, outside of, of, of um, fashion studies. Mm, so it now needs to be collaboratively collected with people who actually lived, witnessed. Yeah. It has to be done this way. Yeah. It's, I, think, I think it's a, a fantastic thing because to me, it was shocking that well, this is also the, you know, we're very used to many tools existing now and we don't really think how much work goes in making them. But I was, I, I reached out to you maybe, I don't know, two, two months ago or three months ago, as I was very last minute asked to um, run a course in Berlin on uh, fashion history, or it was rather called, it's still called fashion clothing and design history. And I thought it was a very peculiar name. And I thought, well, I'm not a fashion historian. The only thing I could offer is a particular lens, the way of looking at history and enabling students to do research in whatever fields they want to do. And I reach out to you asking, you know, what is the, what is the main archive or any example of that kind of sort of resource that could be accessible online? And, and you send me some links, but in, on the whole, the answer is there isn't really uh, something like that, as we can have that such resources at other countries. So that was um, this kind of luck was very, very. I really felt it very strongly because, for example, we have students from I don't know who are um, Swiss of African descent, and uh, they say, "Well, I would like to do research about my father's family in Nigeria." Or of students who are from South Africa, but they have grandparents in India. But I think there is so little 
there's still research on it, maybe it's not worth it. And I was, I was, I was really, I was really frozen by this, oh, it's not worth it because there's not so much about Nigerian fashion. Well, I think out of all African countries, Nigeria actually has such a massive, you know, also take in fashion and produces a lot and also consumes a lot of luxury fashion. So even thinking about the, the, that he said about Nigeria, I was so, uh, so shocked about it. And I said, this is why you should do it because there isn't so many things. You should go, you should interview your your family and you should have a look what's happening there and not only look at Berlin or uh, or Switzerland your very familiar territories but uh, I really I really also hope that students can with their curiosity uh, kind of bring it and think about it and not yet again repetitively be taught that fashion started in 14th century in France because they really said wow I really believe that why I don't know well because I was told that and and it was very fantastic experience very random in a way because I'm as I told you I'm not a fashion historian I specialize more in 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 fashion studies or um, critical humanities in design but that was that was very eye-opening experience and I think those tools uh, those resources those kind of forms of knowledge sharing I think this is very um, very important so when you do when you do master classes or lectures, how how does it work? What do you think? What is now the basically institutions' response um, to those kind of topics and narratives? Do they do they want to learn now about what African fashion is or what is becoming or what does it mean African fashion? Are institutions and courses interested in that? What is the students' response? What is your experience? Mm. So I think I think I'm gonna. Um, arrive at that um, point um, through a kind of um, backtracking, but it was when I was lecturing in the sort of early, sort of um, early 2000. So this was just after South Africa had um, uh, become new democracy and the end of apartheid. And so I was very incredibly aware of what the curriculum was doing in terms of whose voices was it welcoming, um, whose aesthetics was it welcoming in South Africa, and whose um, fashion um, histories um, did it acknowledge and and by default did it did it exclude? And because this was the new South Africa, the the um, so very slow moving wheels of curricula change. Um, the curriculum was still teaching an incredibly of what I thought was an incredibly racist um, fashion um, history um, and fashion theory even that was centered on the global north and, and did not acknowledge where we were teaching from. So already in, in the early 2000s, I was struck up against um, these kinds of restrictions in the curriculum but also in, in, in the institution, in the fashion institution itself, um, this kind of continued reverence for, as you say, you know, Swiss or German or French or Italian fashion um, at the expense of local um, histories, local stories, local research. So um, through those years, um, the idea of decolonizing the curriculum wasn't um, defined. It it was just something that I was doing, and there were there were a few other lecturers who were also involved in this, um, and the need to bring in. So, so really working quite creatively to try and think how do you insert 
meaning and value that that shifts the boundaries of what the canon really is defined by. So that was 20 years ago. And, and I would say that now the real sort of desire to think about decolonizing the curriculum um, is everywhere. Um, the way in which it is um, executed, um, I think there's still huge challenges because I think there's a there's a real important point that Walter Mignola often makes um, in terms of decolonization. And he says, it's not just about changing the content of the conversation. It's about changing the terms of the conversation. So quite a lot of the, um, the scope of what is happening in terms of decolonizing the fashion curriculum is adding a little bit of diversity you know, just adding a little bit of difference, but difference is still remained as different. So it's still mm. sort of defined as different. Um, and so it's just changing the content, but actually the terms of that conversation haven't quite shifted. So there is still work to be done. And this is sort of the more broader question of, of decolonization and, and what that means um, in terms of thinking critically about systems, um, of making that um, speak to the environment differently, speak to community differently, speak to um, sustain like more sustainable practices. Um, and the sort of economics of a fashion system that that is an incredibly difficult one to to address, but I think the pandemic, so I think it's a, it's a two-way, um, uh, it's a dual influence at the moment. I think, I think the sort of call for decolonization on the one hand, um, that the rise and the call for, the, for decolonization, but then also what has happened with the pandemic is, I think there's a really interesting shift happening in terms of global fashion chains um, to kind of start to think what would it mean to be more local? Um, what, mm -hmm. would, what, would, what would local fashion chains mean? Um, and what are local designers producing? And why would it make sense to, to engage in those kinds of conversations and not um, perpetuate this, this aspiration for, a, for an, a kind of global or Western fashion um, hierarchy. So I think there's, I think there's, there's hopefully a, some kind of um, possible shift in thinking about fashion as a series of systems um, and not as a singular global singular narrative. Yeah, and this is and this is, I think, something that fashion, as understood here as industry, is really noticing. Because also, this is something um, I think it's fueled by the pandemic, as you said, the sense of community. Because we experienced, a, you know, a mass collective uh, death on a mass scale in, in in last year. It's it's definitely it takes a toll on on everyone. It's a, it's a massive change. But then the, the other thing that accelerated is the digital development and with targeted advertising, uh, actually 
being able to sell products locally, it's something uh, that's very possible. So on one hand, there are local narratives, communities, and sustainability, but they also probably, in terms of marketing and sales, go in hand with uh, with uh, with targeting of certain groups because of the consumption uh, in many places moving online. So I think that, that there, there are also many layers to that and also seeing that if you speak to a certain community, their language, at least in terms of visual communication and branding, uh, then you might have a relationship with them. So I think this is something that's quite interesting uh, as a kind of complex phenomenon, why we're heading to that. But I also think that this is something that um, fashion education is really almost a little bit late with, because every time I have an experience with, uh, I don't know, programs or teaching programs that are, let's say, in, I don't know, I actually have experiences of working with people uh, involved in programs in either Dubai or Beirut, they're very often a cliches that came from, they're basically bought programs either from US or from, uh, from Belgium, in those two particular cases, or even programs bought from France and uh, delivered in Japan, like ESMOP. This is, this is even mm. more fascinating because they are taught purely in French with translators being in the class. When I, when I, uh, when I experienced it myself, I was, you know, I was, I guess I was giving a, less, a guest lecture in, uh, in Tokyo and in Kyoto. It was okay for me to be translated, but when I discovered that all the teachers there, they don't speak Japanese and they're French and they get tr translators with them 24 seven and they're teaching some kind of concept and idea of French fashion uh, as a general fashion education, because this is not called a very, very French school. Uh, this is just a chain of fashion schools. So this, the, those experiences are quite fascinating to me. And I'm curious how fashion education and curriculums, uh, how institutions are responding to it, apart from maybe you know, inviting you or me introducing some text in the class. I'm very, I'm very intrigued how you know, on the institutional level, it's going to be played out. As you said, it's about spotting a difference and it's about bigger change. And I also intrigue how students can be a part of this change because because uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, because the institutions in the end is made very often, especially private ones, of those bodies that regulate it and teach and transmit the knowledge, but then also the, the, the majority of people that created are students. So I'm curious, what do you think about, you know, kind of bringing it back to the fashion education and what is the role of uh, institutions and educators and what is the role of a student in this uh, in this conversation mm -hmm. i think the role of of um the institutions um i think extends beyond just the institutions and it's this broader um band of um quality assurance or um educational um, accreditation um, bodies that define um, whether the programs or the qualifications that are being offered by an institution are in-depth enough or, or um, critical enough. And so the, this, there's an existing um, clinging to models that have been proven successful. So, so um, even just even down to the basic sort of pattern making knowledge, um, how patterns are made. The fact that in Africa, in Southern Africa, I can speak for Southern Africa, um, but I have a sense that in, in Kenya, there's a very similar kind of um, series of, of um, processes that, that also um, took place through colonialism 
and and the idea that a pattern is drafted for a particular kind of body shape um, by a particular method, which is a European fashion construction pattern construction method. So, so these kinds of of techniques um, that are just so entrenched in the educational system, but can we decolonize the way in which patterns are, are produced um, to start to think about, um, you know, whether it's it's through relationships with cloth, um, alternative pattern cutting methods. Um, so so it's it's really at the structural level of what a fashion um, education looks like, um, what it looks like, what it pretends to be um, to serve an idea of what the fashion industry is, which is about huge global brands, huge kind of global um, um, sales, um, and and to to rethink those um, to rethink those definitions. Um, so I think the the role of students in that. I think there's there's a bit of a divide that happens with a lot of the, the fashion um, educational institutions, and the one is to continue attract the students that want to believe in the story of a kind of um, French 1950s idea of of fashion um, and a quite dated kind of um, last century idea of fashion. So this idea that that fashion is this fantasy. Um, of an industry and then so that one set of students and the, the, the institution still kind of try and draw on 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 that nostalgia almost I don't, yeah, I don't know what other word to really work Rom with. romanticization romanticization I don't know even how to say it. yeah oh. yeah and this kind of glorification of a kind of sort of ideal that's kind of really really not realistic and then you've got the other set of students who are challenging who are questioning and I I think just from experience that I think that second lot of students are often denied the kind of criticality that they're really looking for in their fashion in, in fashion education institutions to really break boundaries. Um, I'm not saying that all of them are, 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 are equally as, as, um, as exclusionary um, um, and they definitely are more spaces being given to diverse voices and diverse um, um, backstories to to the development of collections or the development of, of projects or the development of of student um, innovation um, that is deeply located in 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 personal histories personal narratives um, personal stories um, so that the likes of designers, and I'm just using an example of, of somebody like Tebe Magugu or Rich Manisi, as South African designers drawing on their very specific and localized histories, cultures, um, even their, their kind of experience of contemporary urban realities, these kinds of very, very distinct stories that are coming through. So there are spaces being made for that, yeah. But I think there's a disconnect with the way in which institutions are able to move 
into these kind of newer spaces um, mm. and kind of stuck still in, in, in the older spaces. I think I think I think it's kind of uh, in my personal uh, dream life, and I kind of think I'm witnessing it now because when I started teaching maybe fashion studies ten years ago, this uh, this was a very radical idea to do anything critical in fashion. But the world changed very dynamically, especially in the last two three years, and now it's uh, almost a part of the briefs for students to be critical or political, whatever that means in their context. Nevertheless. Became, uh, became a part of the discussion in some ways. And I, I think we owe it to students to say, well, there is this idea, this concept of beauty and glamour and fantasy and dream, but it's situated in a broader spectrum. The world is much more dense. The world is much more richer than that. It's also much more cruel and violent and socially unjust. And you should have awareness by doing that to what world you're contributing to. If you want to make those beautiful gowns, be my guest, that's totally fine at least have the awareness of what kind of, you know, what, how is it complicit to other things? And I think now for students, especially ones who started studying maybe three years ago, and they are now in the middle of this change of, in the schools that are suddenly pushing those narratives, and they were just taught to do new, innovative, creative, and those, all those kind of words that, you know, in the past were uh, not so hyper-positive, but now they're at the pinnacle of some kind of magical, you know, value together with uh, designer things. Um, I think they're a bit lost. I think they're a bit confused. I think, I think, I think they struggle. Uh, and I think they should also know that, you know, fashion is not only about this kind of global product and this, this global kind of also uh, jobs and those global communities that when you go to look for a job on business of fashion, you get, I don't know, only jobs in five cities in the world or maybe, maybe seven tops. Uh, but that there is also that fashion is situated as this kind of local practice that is about culture, it's about people. It's about all those kind of elements that maybe they can locally, you know, engage with it and not run for new internships in Paris and also do things that they can do locally. But I think we're kind of now maybe in this transition period. And I just hope that, you know, the current students, they will see it as a, as a kind of exciting opportunity that actually fashion is gaining much more traction and much more meanings and way of doing fashion rather than just one that was in the past uh, considered um, you know of value and that they can actually see that this this choice this plurality is something that is quite exciting and that they can establish new formats obviously that's harder because when there's more choice uh, things get uh, much more difficult right uh -huh. so that's from our conversation that's what i was um, that's what i was that's what I was thinking that maybe this is where it's leading and I ask you about the agency of students because now students are um, Gen Z students or very very young millennials uh, they, they are kind of creating many projects many initiatives I'm quite impressed with the CSM uh, alumni club that I also joined as a central San Martins alumni where students themselves kind of gathered different people who graduated from central San Martins so very noble school, big network of people, and ask them to be their mentors for the second and third year fashion students. So I think I think this could also be taken further into different disciplines. But obviously, it's a question if students should do it, or if institutions should um, support it, or if they can use the institution to do it. That's another that's another way to look about it. Mm -hmm. and, and I completely, um, you know, the, the idea of of um, gatekeeping or, or hierarchy within that within that system, and I think um, that 
even institutions like CSM, which would have produced every year, perhaps five or six of the top or the, the most successful graduates. And those become sort of the, 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 the only sort of beneficiaries of, of the entire sort of cohort of students that, that passes through every year. But now what's starting to happen is that the, it's not just those five or six that end up with, a, you know, some kind of um, prestige um, identity or prestige career, um, but it is across the whole group that there's a, a different power dynamic that's happening in terms of engagement and and I think the digital has done it. And why I'm, I'm saying that is I think um, access um, has been such a limiting factor. So again, drawing on um, in the last three years, we've had Tebe Magugu, then we had Sindisa Kamalo, and that now this year we've got Lukanyo Mwendingi um, each year um, being nominated as a, as a finalist in the LVMH. Mm. But it is this kind of participation from the global south that has been enabled by the digital. So these kinds of conversations, these kinds of dialogues that are happening around the designer's work is not just managed um, in, a, in a singular story, but the digital has allowed far more richer and more diverse stories. So. Um, projects that Lucanio has been recently involved in um, have very far sort of trajectories in South Africa and, and roots in South Africa that, that create a richness to that story. Um, and mm. these kinds of um, far more... Um, embedded stories um, from the continent, I think have started to shift this kind of sort of um, drop into the continent, sort of see what's right, right, or just in a very small sort of um, 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 opening or a small sort of um, um, view. So it's a far more diverse, a far more richer observation that's possible to a far more diverse conversation. Um, and so the digital has definitely opened up intercontinental dialogue as well. Um, and so it's not just so isolated that there's one designer only in, in Lagos who's doing interesting work. It's suddenly sort of there's, there's, a, there's a whole community of designers. There's a whole community of creatives in Lagos, including photographers, makeup artists, stylists, um, musicians, retailers, manufacturers. Um, so the complexities are, are far more evident. And I think that that's been one of the greatest shifts is, is opening that up. Um, and I think one of the, the results of the pandemic is this move to, to digital conversations um, and what has been really re rewarding, I think, for a lot of African creatives is this inter-African conversation mm. so where, where designers from Mozambique are able to now 
be in dialogue with designers from, from Kenya and these kinds of opening up of these conversations across the continent, which previously the, the just the logistics of space and, and distance um, kept very far apart. Well, I'm hoping that we will see much more of it and that I will be able, you know, from my home in Berlin to learn mm -hmm. more about it. And I hope that, you know, there will be not only the archive you're working on, but many different archives and many different practices of either digitizing or transforming into other formats of, you know, transmittable knowledge, uh, mm -hmm. what, you know, what African fashion actually is or what are those African fashions. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Erica. It was a pleasure talking to you. Mm, thank you. Thank you, Beata. Thank you. Mm -hmm.